WBZ original. Hmm. Okay, so how are we doing this? Do you this? remember how to do this? How do you want it? Who do you want to have start? Um, Why don't you start, Paula? Okay. Yeah, you guys remember how to do a re-intro, right? All right, so I'll say hello. Welcome back to WBZ. We're back. Yep, yep, uh, joined yep. by Liam Martin. Hello, Liam. Say hi. Yep. Hi. John Clay yep. Say yep. hi. And then... Welcome back. Welcome into Studio BZ. I'm Paula Evan, joined by Liam Liam Martin. Martin. Hi, how are you? Welcome back from the UK. Thank you. Nice to to be back. back. And of course, John Keller. Hi, John. How was your summer? It was awfully good. Oh, God. Are you going to start talking in a British accent now? She's going to start saying aluminium. I'm going to say aluminium and, you know, telling you to sort things out. (laughs) Things like that. I promise I will drop the book. Yeah, we we, we took steps to get rid of that a couple of hundred (laughs) years ago. Yes, we did. We are not interested in going back. How was your summer? It was beautiful. Beautiful? Weather was good. Everything was great. And yet it had to be interrupted the other day by a primary election. It was interrupted big time. And it was, it was... It seemed like it was going to be a sleepy primary. It was not a sleepy primary. No. Yeah, we're going to talk about what went on and try to get a little bit beyond the surface of the results and and maybe look forward to what's going to happen in November. All right. So coming up, we'll talk about that. Liam and I also got the first exclusive interview with the new Boston Public Schools interim school superintendent, Laura Perrill. And you'll hear the interesting things she has to say. She's sort of the ultimate outsider becoming an insider. And there were some people worried that she is not qualified for this job. So we asked her directly about that interesting response from her. And then a conversation I recorded just a little bit ago with a local guy named Mark Abrams, Mm. who is one of the founders of the Ig Nobel Awards, (laughs) not the Nobel Awards, the Ig Nobel Prizes, which I always thought was just a joke given to ridiculous research projects. Mm -hmm. And I think you'll, you'll remember this when you hear us start to talk about some of them. But it turns out there's a lot more to the Ig Nobels then meets the eye, and we'll talk with Mark Abrams coming up. Our newscasters, our editors all work as an efficient, well-coordinated, fact-finding team. In terms of the primary, which really kind of rocked everybody's world last night, let's start out talking about two of the big names that emerged from last night. Who is Ayanna Presley? Who is Rachel Rollins? John? <laughs> I don't know very much about Rachel Rollins. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I do know is that she ran a really great race. Uh, she connected uh, with a constituency that really wants reform of the way the district attorney's office operates in Suffolk County. They want prison reform. They want a whole host of issues addressed that they don't feel have been addressed. And uh, in a crowded field with other women, with other people of color, uh, she came to the fore. And of course, Ayanna Presley. Uh, has been a Boston city councilor, not just any city councilor. She has topped the ballot several straight years as an at-large city councilor. And she parlayed that popularity into what I think for everyone was, if not a stunning upset, certainly a surprising upset of the 10-term incumbent Mike Capuano. Not easy to unseat an incumbent of 20 years. No, absolutely not. And, And Mike Capuano, who was popular 
and ran a tough race. He was here. He campaigned. He debated against her. This was not the case of Joel Crowley against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York. Capuano took the race seriously, and she still was able to beat him. And she beat him by 19 points. Yeah, it was a blowout. She could have won that race just on the number of votes she pulled out of Boston, the Boston parts of the district alone, which is a real uh, uh, surprising outcome. But, you know, in looking back on it, you're right, Liam. Uh, Capuano showed up, took this seriously early on, and made all the quote-unquote right moves. But could it be that the right moves are, in this climate, the wrong moves? For instance, he tried to immediately blunt the racial subtext of, you know, white white male incumbent versus a black female And challenger. we should say the 7th Congressional District is a majority-minority district. But I believe it's the only one in In adult population, but not among voters. Okay. Whites still right. are a majority they, they of the turn voters. Out to vote. And this was the district people have been pointing out since last night. Tip O'Neill and Jack Kennedy represented it, It's sort that? of what's left Once of upon it a time. after. That's mm-hmm. right. But uh, he came right out of the box with uh, big-time endorsements from John Lewis, the civil rights icon. The Congressional Black Caucus endorsed Capuano, former Governor DeVal Patrick. Uh, but it turns out, and along with that, he got endorsements from Mayor Marty Walsh, uh, Congressman Joe Kennedy. But it turns out that, in, at least in this district on September 4th, insider endorsements didn't matter not only didn't matter but were a negative this was not a white versus black race i don't even think it was a young versus old race this was an insider versus outsider race albeit an outsider who's already an elected official i did think it was significant over the summer alexandra Ocasio Cortez, first one of the first people she mentioned in her acceptance speech was Ayanna Pressley. It was within the first she knew, two sentences of her acceptance speech. She knew she was going to win as well. And don't you think that this really is a year where, as you say, John, it's not only insider outsider, Liam, the Democrats are going hard left. Hard left. I think they're also, just in terms of the candidates they're putting forward, they're going women. We've been talking every few years. We talk about the year of the woman. It seems true this time. I pulled up some statistics on this. 263 women have now advanced in U.S. House, Senate, and governor's races to the general election. 263. I think it's a record. Um, We have Ayanna Presley winning. Lori Trahan likely has won the third congressional district. Do you buy that there's something going on here with women this year, John, specifically on the Democratic side? Yeah, but I— don't see it as just a case of, well, uh, you know, women somehow have the magic potion this time mm-hmm. around. Uh, because these candidates are all different. We talk about women yeah, like they they're a monolithic exactly. block. Thank there you was very much. Going, <laughs> we are going not monolithic. <laughs> My pleasure, Paul. My pleasure. But thinking back to earlier this year in the Virginia governor's race, remember that? That was a big upset where the Republican was supposed to win, was aligned with President Trump. Not only did he lose to the Democrat, but the Democrat staged a surprise takeover of the assembly in Virginia. And one of the candidates was a uh, transgender woman yes, uh, who didn't run on the basis of her gender or of being transgender. She ran, her campaign slogan was, and I may uh, botch the specific, specifics of this, but it was, let's fix Route 87. Right. right. She had it a specific a, Yeah, a very platform. specific, granular, local <laughs> issue. Yeah. So what I'm trying to get at well, is when men... 
generalizing here, mm -hmm. have made a hash of a job, mm -hmm. any job. Then I think it's only natural that when women come along offering a different perspective, mm -hmm. offering an aura of competence and of empathy that perhaps men sometimes don't channel, that voters are going to be drawn to that, not just female voters, but also male voters. But everybody. And, and I think we're also seeing the long-term effect that, well, first of all, when women run, they win, mm -hmm. as you pointed out in the numbers, Liam. But also, don't you think, now that it's been several decades, that the percentage of women in every college graduating class has grown oh, yeah. to the point where now it's getting oh, to be 60 percent they are yeah. overtaking men we're beginning to see young professional women heading out into the workforce and heading into the voting booth and, and believe saying, they can be leaders where is someone who looks like me but, where are the women who are going to represent my interests as you point out but also both ocasio-cortez and ayanna presley was specifically made the point uh as you know they do being democrats that representation is important Important, mm -hmm. that the people who live in the district, someone who represents them, it needs to reflect the district. Sure. And I think that that has become a very persuasive argument that they are going to actually do what they say they're going to do when well, they can And a two-part question to you, John. I looked at the statistics, 20% of the U.S. Congress is women. So we were due for a correction. I think that's below Afghanistan. Afghanistan's parliament is 28% women. So the U.S. was due for some sort of correction in that sense anyway. But one of the other things that I've noticed is that at least this year, with this, this year of the woman we keep hearing about, it seems to be happening more so on the Democratic side than on the Republican side. I have uh, Dave Wasserman of Redistrict said, Dems have nominated women in 50% of the 2018 House races. So 50% of the candidates on the Democratic side in the 18 House races are women. On the GOP side, it's 17%. It seems like they're going the opposite direction. Is this the result in both of those statistics of Trump? Uh, no, I think it runs much deeper than Trump. Mm. Certainly, he has inflamed uh, people and excited the resistance, if you'll pardon the cliche. And that's definitely a factor here. That's why, and we can get into this in a minute, I think Charlie Baker shouldn't be very sanguine about the results in the primary the other night. But look, that correction that you referred to was long overdue. First of all, it wasn't so long ago that it was Republicans who were doing a better job of putting of women candidates forward. Female so, candidates. so what's going on now? So, why have they well, seemed to go the other way? Democratic women have had it. Mm. Uh, you see that particularly here in Massachusetts. I know female Democratic activists who've worked their heart out for almost invariably male candidates here in Massachusetts over the years who are still livid over the fact that the entire male establishment of Massachusetts, John Kerry, Ted Kennedy, then Speaker Sal DeMacy, uh, Governor Deval Patrick all endorsed Barack Obama over Hillary Clinton oh, in 2008. Oh, sure. That, that's still... Living about it. Still really runs deep. And, you know, now it's payback. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering on the Republican side why it's not happening there. Why it's gone the other way. Is it that it's become the party of Trump? You know, I don't know. I don't have a snappy answer for that. I really have to look more closely at that around the country. I mean, you know, in, in Massachusetts... 
which I'm more intimately familiar with, Republican women have have done well here over the years. You know, Margaret Heckler mm-hmm. uh, uh, went to Congress. I believe Edith Rogers, the original female member of Congress from here, was a Republican. Am I correct on that, Paul? Not sure. I'd have to look it up. Okay, I'm, I'm taking else. a chance here. But you know, mm-hmm. uh, Carrie, Carrie Healy, Healy was lieutenant governor and so forth. Uh, but now, Our current lieutenant governor, just in recent years, the current Karen Karen Polito. Polito, just in recent years, now you're seeing women break through in the Democratic side. Elizabeth mm-hmm. Warren, Nikki Songus, uh, Catherine Clark, and so on. And now Ayanna Presley, and you know, <laughs> and Laurie Trahan, in all likelihood. And, well, we'll see after yeah. the recount is done. But I'll tell you, I hate to get too far ahead of things, but uh, you know whose Senate seat is up in two years from now here in Massachusetts? Ed Markey. Mm-hmm. God bless him. One of the oldest, whitest guys in Massachusetts <laughs> politics. <laughs> well, the might be I, wonder, the same I wonder if he's looking at Ayanna Presley oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. what she just pulled up and thinking, Uh-oh. of course he is. Oh, of course. I, I, I mean, and two I will years say perfect one of the things that occurred to me last night was watching the results come in and we had seen it with Joe Crowley again in New York was not a good year to be an older white politician. True. However, uh, please take note of the fact that on Tuesday night, Galvin won. Uh, Galvin won, and two of the biggest upsets in the state legislature involved men of color. Byron Rushing, an African American representative from the South End, has been there since the 80s. He got bounced by a little known challenger, and Jeffrey Sanchez, one of the leading Latino political figures in the state, he got bounced. Also, by the way, let's not forget you mentioned the uh, the Lori Trahan, Dan Code, Dan. Yes. There, yes, see yeah. what happens there. Uh, you know, close third, a very impressive showing by Juana Mat- Matias. Yes, a Demi- uh, uh, an immigrant from the Dominican, mm-hmm. first state generation representative immigrant. from the Lawrence area. Listen, She's someone to watch going women's forward. Women looking at women on the ballot can go into a voting booth and in the kind of power that they might not necessarily have at work to affect their future, uh, control their destiny at home, whatever, in the voting booth is where women can really exercise a lot of power. And, and I think really there's a huge incentive to do that. The Me Too movement comes in. To the sure. Yeah, well. Because yeah. underlying the Me Too movement, when you strip away all the details of the, these uh, these predatory men and what they did or what they're alleged to have done, is, uh, is the question of women wanting basic decent human respect to be treated equally and fairly and to be listened to and and to be treated uh, uh, you know, like human beings. Like a person? And, yeah, like a person. That doesn't that seem really like, seems like right. it's asking It doesn't a lot. seem no. like too much to ask. And I, I think you're right. I think this all feeds in mm-hmm. to a correction. That's a great word you used, correction. Yeah, it is a correction. Quick aside, and, by the way. Yeah, I'm just yeah. very glad that Paula is here for this kind con- Paula almost didn't make this conversation. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, it it's going to be John and me. Yeah, it would have been mansplaining. Older white men talking about the year of the woman. I feel like the optics of Thank that might not for, have been great. Thank I'm you for glad you were. I'm glad we were able to get back in time from your. I ran segment. out to yeah. uh, which segues into our next segment because I ran out to talk to the new woman interim Boston Public School Superintendent. So we'll talk about that in the next uh, in the next segment. But again, I think you're seeing an influx into the adult world and economy of college educated professional women, and as you say, John, that whole sense, that notion of women 
First of all, I think women in general are tired of it being like, it can only be the year of the woman. How about the decade? How about we head toward a century um, of at least 50-50? Let's start with a year. And there's no sense anymore of this be at home, stay with kids, barefoot in the kitchen. Wait your turn. Don't be pushy. And they're paying know, off student loans, just like their male classmates, and they want people in Washington getting it done. And lest we forget, the Capuano-Presley race kicked off mm-hmm. within minutes of Presley's announcement that she was going to run with comments from world-class blowhard Barney Frank, oh boy. the former congressman, who lashed out at Presley with this big tirade about how, you know, this is what's wrong with Democrats. This is why we always lose. People don't understand. you got to wait your turn. He's got seniority. Wait your turn, wait your turn. And uh, looking back on it, that was an early fire that got lit under both Presley and her supporters. Huge mistake. And I think last night she was saying, you know, one of her campaign slogans was... Change can't wait. Change can't wait. And people are not going to fall into that trap of the power of the incumbency and, oh, my congressman might be chairman of the blah, blah, blah committee, so I got to keep him. That kind of old Massachusetts party loyalty is becoming a thing of the past. And that's such a great slogan. Yes. We live in an era where slogans are all important. Don't forget, make America Mm -hmm. great again. Yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because for the voter in the seventh CD who is maybe not a high-intensity political junkie, may not even have known who Mike Capuano was, certainly not who Ayanna Presley was, but who is upset about the status quo in our country right now, whether it's Trump or anyone else. And they're, they're thinking to themselves, yeah, I would like things to change. Absolutely. And I would like it to change tomorrow. And let's hand it to Mike Capuano, by the way, who completely respected Ayanna Presley's run from beginning to end, unlike remarks that you just mentioned Barney Frank made, yeah. and did not make the mistake of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's opponent in New York, who wouldn't even debate her and sent a surrogate to debate her. I mean, what a monumental And despite all mistake. that, Capuano got so hammered last night. He got yes. smoked. And, and, and keep in mind, too, but he, good for him. he not just was a physical embodiment of the establishment, but his campaign was a classic establishment campaign. I mentioned get big name endorsements. Right. Try to neutralize what you perceive to be your opponent's key strength. Uh, outraise and spend her. Mm. Get up on TV early and stay there. All the boxes were checked in the Capuano campaign and he got blown out of the water. Presley's communications director pointed out on Twitter last night the only paid advertising they had on the air in the campaign was like direct TV. Like it was very Univision. minimal. Univision, I don't think Telemundo. I saw a single yeah. Presley Telemundo, on, the, on TV. Univision. So he was Web saying videos. to other candidates out there looking toward November, it can be done. And yeah. Ocasio-Cortez also utilized yes. social but media. She didn't have any TV ads. Charlie Baker, last night, yeah. surprised... Were you surprised by his opponent, Scott Lively, a very conservative firebrand minister from Springfield, uh, has called uh, Mm. uh, President Obama a homosexualist, very far right, we're talking extreme views, had more than 30% last night in the primary, the Republican primary, against Charlie Baker? You know, there's an old saying that, you know, you could could nominate a, uh, a potted plant 
against an incumbent and they'll get 30 percent. But Lively got over 36 percent after surprising everybody by winning about ballot access at the convention easily. I believe he got over 20 percent. He got well over 20 percent of the delegates at the Republican convention. So, you know, these are, for the most part, these are not people who like Scott Lively. There was very little to like. It's a protest vote. It was an anti-Baker vote. Uh, it's. I would say that it was predominantly Trump-supporting Republicans who have not appreciated Baker's aggressive distancing from Trump, uh, and uh, they wanted to send him a message. They they like to refer to him. You hear, you know, on the on how and with Howie Carr and other right-wing talk show hosts, you hear them calling Baker a rhino, Republican mm-hmm. in name mm-hmm. only. Mm-hmm. And the significance of this is, you know, in the end, Republicans are what about twelve. 10% of the overall vote. But let me remind you that four years ago, Charlie Baker beat Martha Coakley, and sorry, Martha, one of the worst general election candidates I've seen in my 150 years of covering What do you want me to do, politics. stand outside Fenway Park in the okay. cold and shake hands <laughs> with beat, those people? He beat her by yes, the narrowest margin in modern Massachusetts political history, yeah. 40,000 votes. Right. Scott Lively on Tuesday, drew over 90,000 votes. So if even half of those people who were so angry at Charlie Baker that they would uh, throw away their vote on this nutbag, if they just blank the governor's race, Charlie Baker's got a problem. He could be in trouble. And now, right below Baker on on the ballot in November is the party Senate nominee, Jeff Deal, who was co-chair of the Trump campaign and is running as Trump Jr. Not the real Trump Jr., but a pseudo-Trump Jr. That job's already taken, we think. (laughs) And uh, so that just adds to the sense if, if... you know, you're if, not going to get away with that. Yeah, I could see a perfect storm here. I'm not predicting it, but I could see it where angry anti-Trump voters are storming the polls. Yep. The Democrats are pulling out all sorts of people like the folks who showed up to vote for Ayanna Presley, mm-hmm. who are there for one specific reason, right. younger voters, Latino voters, whether they're African-American or And they're not you. there to necessarily split their ticket. Right. And, you know, one last thing before we move on here. Pop quiz, who was the happiest person on the ballot on primary night? Answer, in my view. Yes. Elizabeth Warren. Oh, sure. Nobody ever thought she was going to be seriously challenged, no matter who the Republican nominee was. But to run against a Trump clone. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a dream come true. She, it's like a an, an early technical rehearsal for the presidential <laughs> by, by the way, she's planning. By the way, within five minutes of Jeff Deal being announced as the winner last night, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren's campaign had sent an email to our newsroom saying, I have accepted three debates yes. with oh, Jeff Deal right wait. out of the gate. She came right out of the gate, almost as if like, I'm marking these on my calendar. Can't wait. Here you mm-hmm. go. I'll take as many debates as he wants. Yeah. I, I think, especially given what we were talking about with the year of the woman, Jeff Deal, middle-aged white guy who ran, partly ran the Trump campaign in Massachusetts in 2016, mm-hmm. you're right. Of all the candidates yeah. she could have faced, including Beth Lindstrom, mm-hmm. uh, a woman who was on the Republican primary ticket who lost, this is probably the best. She knows choice. this is her audience, and she's good in front of a debate. A and debate by the audience. way, the best of those three debates will be right here at WBZ. That's WBZ, right. absolutely, John. And John Keller will be in charge. Details you want to come. Always in a debate, your most 
classic foil, right? You you really don't want to debate someone where the distinctions are narrow. You mm, want a yeah. complete foil for yourself and John Keller right in the middle. I mean, what could be better? <laughs> uh, no, actually, for this one, I think I'm going to be off to the off side. Off to the side. I just bought some new sport jackets. I don't want to get any on me. You know okay, what I'm saying? <laughs> Get any what? <laughs> Anger. I'm not saying. <laughs> Each day, hundreds of thousands of people pour into the one foot smile downtown, smile downtown bar. So, Liam and I had the first exclusive interview with the interim Boston Public School Superintendent, Laura Perrill, who begins as we uh, commence with the school year here in the unenviable position of taking over after a little kerfuffle that happened over the summer with the previous superintendent, Tommy Chang. Liam, explain what happened with Tommy Chang. Well, Tommy Chang was pushed out slash resigned uh, over the summer after three years. His contract was up. It was not not renewed. And John, you had some reporting on some of the inner workings between Tommy Chang and Mayor Marty Walsh and why that relationship had soured. Well, one of the key things was sort of page A1 of the bureaucrat handbook in a in a governmental entity don't let the boss be surprised by negative news it happened again and again with chang one of them was chang tried to push back the start time of school and he did it before allowing parents to really give their they say. Really a lot of people aware. around the country think pu- pushing back school start times is a good idea yes, but it's got to be done in a certain way well and yeah. you've got to loop the mayor in yes, if there's yeah. something that's going right. to make headlines. no breaking news when he's hearing about it from a globe reporter you've got right. problems right. <laughs> but they said it was a uh, what was the phrase john a mutual parting of mutual party yeah, he was so fired after the yes three that's years politics contract, speak for he was fired he was done so enter laura perrell she most people in Boston might ask, who is she? Uh, was the CEO of the educational nonprofit Edvestors. So she has kind of the advantage of being someone who knows where all the bodies are buried because she was the ultimate outsider witnessing what was going on inside the Boston Public Schools. Her nonprofit gave seed grants for very experimental education initiatives within schools in terms of the arts, in terms of health care of children. She wanted algebra for eighth grade students. Yes, all kinds of creative things. And she provided the outside funding. So people within the Boston Public School System actually know her very well. Um, Marty Walsh is clearly impressed, the mayor, by her work. And as soon as the Tommy Chang debacle was over and he had exited stage left, uh, Mayor Marty Walsh must have said to himself and the school committee, look, we got to get somebody we know we can rely on. And here she is. She's been working in the schools. She's going to be the interim superintendent while we begin the search formally for the actual one. The kind of controversial aspect of her biography is she's never been an educator does not have an advanced degree, has never been a school superintendent. Does not have a license to run a school system. Does not have one, which can be worked out. But um, there was surprisingly little uh, pushback from the teachers union. There was some, uh, and there was a little bit of complaint from the NAACP and some other civil rights groups that the the process wasn't transparent enough of how Marty just tapped her. But I think it's to her credit that people within the school system who've clearly worked with her think she is competent to, to do this. We get into all of this with mm-hmm. Laura Prill, 8 p.m., Paula and me. Listen now to this recording.
Laura, thanks for coming in tonight. I'm delighted to be here. Thank, Thank you for, for joining me. us. And you're very well known within the Boston public school system, but a lot of our viewers might not have heard about you. You were CEO of the education nonprofit Edvestors. Tell us about it and what you did there. So for the last 16 years, um, as the head of Edvestors, which is a school improvement nonprofit, as you say, I've had the opportunity to work in and around um, all Boston schools, but with a particular focus on the Boston public schools. Mm -hmm. So this means everything from um, providing resources to foster innovation and solutions and problem solving right at the classroom level and school-based level to major system level work on issues like middle grades, math, rigor, mm -hmm. Mm. access, equitable access to arts education for now 17,000 more students over the period that we worked mm -hmm. on this. Mm -hmm. um, and then also the best part was really looking at and highlighting stories of rapid and significant improvement by Boston Public Schools and lifting that up with $100,000 a year um, you would give a reward prize. each year Every to a different year school. For the last 13 years, mm -hmm. focused on stories of real improvement inside mm -hmm. the Boston Public Schools. And the group gave seed grants for really experimental educational exactly. ideas. Mm -hmm. Across all kinds of different issue areas, everything from how to bring technology into the classroom to how to meet the needs of English mm -hmm. learners, how to look at mental health mm -hmm. um, and trauma responsiveness in our schools. And having that sort of level of both right at the ground level in classroom up to mm -hmm. the system level work has really given me a full perspective on the work of the Boston Public Schools. You've taken an unusual path to this position. You've never been a teacher, a principal, or a superintendent. Uh, what's your response to some people who worry about your qualifications for this job, the superintendent of a system that's this big? Well, I think one of the things that um, Certainly the system knowledge matters, but one of the things that really matters is an approach that I'm trying to bring into central office, which is really looking at the central office as a support system to schools and school leaders. So it is first and foremost making sure that um, the voices of frontline educators, the voices of the school leaders and the staff who are closest to the work that actually touches our students and families is pulled forward and um, incorporated into how we make decisions. And I think that is something that my existing knowledge helps mm. me to do um, inside the system. Um, it is really about keeping the, the voice and expertise of educators front and center. Whether or not I myself am that educator, that is clearly the mission and role that I'm um, leading. We were talking about this just before. Do you think you're in an, a unique position because you were sort of a third party observer working with the school system but mm. outside of it and now that you're going to be running the operation overseeing both educators and the staff that kind of gives you a unique perspective. I think that is true and I think the other part of that perspective is that um, the other part of my 16 year history is that of a BPS parent mm -hmm. and I think that is a unique lens at least in Boston's recent history. Um, for school leaders, and that's also how I, too, have learned about the system as right. a parent of two students. And I think bringing those two together is really where, as an interim superintendent, I think my job is to help reposition and support the work um, so that we don't lose time for our mm -hmm. students and families. And both as a parent of two children who went through the system and as the CEO of Edvestors, what are some of the issues you've identified specifically that you want to tackle? 
as interim superintendent? So I think there are a few um, that particularly during, you know, in the wake of an abrupt transition um, in the middle of summer, mm. one of the first priorities that I've shared both with school leaders and central office is that we are opening schools in a week. And even when I um, uh, took the role on July 2nd, not very much time. I think it's important to say out loud how significant all that exciting preparation is and how hard people are working on it. And so I've been supporting that work first and foremost. I think the second is really reconnecting with school leaders mm -hmm. and getting this balance right between central office and schools. Right. That speaks squarely to my prior experience mm -hmm. working both at the individual school and at the system level. As you said, it was an abrupt change. And let's just talk about the process a little bit because there was uh, a statement from the NAACP about the transparency of the process, some question about how long you might be interim superintendent, and if you're interested in this job long term. Uh, what do you say to people who have questions about how all of this is happening? Well, I think, you know, the selection of interims mm -hmm. um, across many industries are usually done relatively quickly. So I will, you know, put that out. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there are very important questions about the long-term search. That's really the province of the school committee. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so my will you, be, will you be a candidate for, for the permanent job or do you not know yet? I think my only focus is on the very large and daunting assignment in front of me, <laughs> yes, which is yeah. to um, shepherd the school system through an interim regardless of its length, I think. You know, the, the standard thinking is it's um, usually often about the duration of a school year. Mm -hmm. Our last wonderfully effective interim superintendent, John McDonough, mm -hmm. um, um, is, you know, his lasted for two years. Right. Um, but I think that is entirely up to the process led by the school committee. I will say that interim superintendent... Uh, John McDonough just spent um, uh, the better part of the last month with me as a mentor and coach. That's good. Um, good to get that experience. And while I have my own history, his is far longer mm -hmm. um, and more detailed. And so yeah. it was really terrific to make sure I'm learning from the village around the school. What's, what's the first thing you want to tackle? What's job one? Well, I think opening the school system right, reconnecting with school leaders um, are the two things. And then I, I think the third is re-engaging some of the important um, civic and citywide conversations about the future of our schools. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, Build BPS is the most important prism looking at the long-term shape of our facilities and schools. You notice mm -hmm. these statistics on the Boston Schools website. The students are, these are the demographics, 42% uh, Hispanic, 34% black, 14% white, and 9% Asian. The staff, on the other hand, 61% white. 21% black, 11% Hispanic, 6% Asian. Those statistics are pretty jarring. Do you, do you see a disparity? Is this a challenge? And how do you go about tackling something like this? I think it's absolutely a priority. Um, and I think um, um, to increase the diversity of our workforce, um, given the importance of ensuring that our students see adults that they recognize. And this is true in many roles, the adults who surround them, the staff, the partners, but importantly, school leaders, where we have tremendous diversity, but also our teachers. And we do have a link from our website to the BPS website and all of the back-to-school information. Wonderful. That is there for families. And tips for back-to-school, which we all need. <laughs> we could use some. Laura Perel, new interim superintendent. We appreciate coming in. Congratulations today. on the job. Good luck. It's a, big, it's a big task ahead of you. Well, there's lots Good of luck. hands to join the work, so sure. thank you. Absolutely. Identify problems, come up with some solutions, help people. Knowledge is a great weapon. So, Paula, Liam, 
Wouldn't you be interested in learning more about the spectroscopic comparison of apples and oranges? How about the didgeridoo treatment of sleep apnea? Or this is a really good one. Wouldn't you want to really get to the bottom of why old men have big ears? Because <laughs> I thought your ears were stop, supposed to stop growing as you age. Is it only men? You or is it just that we don't notice it with women? I can see you're intrigued. And that's why either. I think you're going to enjoy my conversation <laughs> with Mark Abrams about his baby, the Ig Nobel Prizes. Now, we know what the Nobel Prizes are. Sure. What are the Ig Nobel Prizes? <laughs> When you first hear about it, I freely admit I thought it was a joke. Uh, but I was educated by Mark Abrams that while they have a lot of fun with the Ig Nobel Prizes, which are coming up a little later this month over at Harvard. Kind of like the Oscars and the Razzies. Kind of. The Razzies. But there's a lot more to it than meets the eye. Listen. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. Research projects, studies, analyses. We're neck deep in them. They rain down on us like a tsunami at all times. And sometimes you see a research study coming across the wire or in your newspaper, you hear about it on the radio, and you say to yourself, that is some unbelievable BS or has to be. Well, our guest here on Studio BZ can speak to this issue perhaps more expertly than the most expert expert. He's Mark Abrams, the founder, co-founder, and editor of Improbable Research and the driving force behind the annual Ig Nobel Awards. And Mark, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Good to have you here. I'm sorry I missed last year's Ig Nobel Awards ceremony. This year's is coming up in just a few weeks. We can talk about that in a minute. But I would have liked to know more about the winner of the Physics Prize for using fluid dynamics to probe the question, can a cat be both a solid and a liquid? That must have been compelling. It was and it is. <laughs> I'll tell you a little more about the thing in general. We collect research. We collect stories of real things that people around the world are trying to figure out. That's what research is. Some of it is done by scientists. Some of it is done by people in universities who study other things. Some of it is done by kids, by people, just people trying to figure out what is going on around them and what's not, what's the difference. And a lot of the stuff is so unexpected. There's something about it that's unexpected, so unexpected that your first reaction is just to laugh at it. You can't do anything else. And some of that stuff also sticks in your head and kind of bounces around. And you find even a week later, you're still thinking about this thing. And you want to tell your best friends. That's the stuff that we collect, the stuff that makes people laugh and then think. Every year, we have a big ceremony. We've been doing this every year since 1991, where we pick 10 people or 10 groups from around the world who've done things like this, like the one you mentioned. Is a cat a solid or a liquid? And somebody who really looked into that. And we give them Ig Nobel Prizes. We offer them these prizes. They can say no if they want, but almost all of them do. And they come here from around the world at their own expense, because we don't have any money, we have a big ceremony over at Harvard in Cambridge with a bunch of Nobel Prize winners who shake the hands of these people who've done these wonderful, terrible, strange, funny things that make people laugh and think. 
Why do we need to know whether a cat is a solid or a liquid? I guess that's what I'm wondering. Good, you're wondering. That's the whole point of it. <laughs> a lot of these things, like a lot of things you probably run into every day at work, if you go to work every day, you wonder, why am I doing this? Why is somebody telling this? And sometimes the answer is, well, there's no reason. But sometimes it turns out there is a reason. Well, you know, I'm, I don't think of myself as a Luddite who's uh, opposed to scientific inquiry. But, you know, the, the Anatomy Prize last year, the Ig Nobel, went to James Heathcote for his medical research study, Why Do Old Men Have Big Ears? Now, are you drawn to the names of these projects initially, or do they have to meet a certain standard of bizarreness or downright stupidity, or, or do they ever fall under that rubric? All of that and a lot more. The things that are most interesting to me and to us as a group and the things that we pick, the things we write about in the magazine are the things where it'll hit you that way. But at first glance, there's no way at first glance to figure out, is this something that's colossally stupid or is it the opposite? There are a lot of things in the world, a lot of people who might strike you at first the first moment as being colossally stupid and pointless and worthless. And then you see a little more and you realize, whoa, this is completely the opposite of what I thought. So either end, something either that looks great but turns out to be worthless or something that looks worthless that turns out to be great. They're both funny. They both make people think. Well, which type wins the wins an ignoble? Do they have to have some meat on the bone or both. can it both. It can okay. be it can be meat without a bone. It can be a bone without meat. Well, it can what's be the most meatless, stupid award winner you've ever had? This is kind of my baby, so I would never describe any of the winners as uh, as being you know especially no offense, good man. or bad. No, and a lot of them it's hard to tell. So I'll, I'll I'll tell you about a few who've won prizes over the year, and these are all people who've been here, in, you know, in Boston, and, and and thousands of people come to the show and shake their hands and talk to them. One of them, it's a kind of sad story. Uh, a guy who died two weeks ago. He's uh, from Canada, North Bay, Canada, which is about a five-hour drive north of Toronto. His name is Troy Hurtabies. Troy spent something like seven years building a suit of armor that he could wear that would protect him against grizzly bears. He wanted to go out in the woods and hang out with grizzly bears, but he knew that's dangerous. So he collects stuff from the town dump. He started with some old hockey equipment, and then he'd test it. He'd have people hit him with a stick or something like that, and then he'd, he'd add more and more stuff. So the suit got bigger and bigger and tougher and tougher. He was adding titanium and all kinds of stuff. And he had people take video of it. And their, their video, there's a beautiful documentary movie the Canadian National Film Board made of, of him. You can see Troy in this big suit, kind of looks like RoboCop, if you saw that movie, because he had seen the movie just before he got the idea. And you can see Troy in this big suit where he can barely move. And there are bikers in a biker bar who are hitting him with baseball bats. You can see Troy in the suit being pushed over the side of a cliff and tumbling down the cliff. You can see him in this big RoboCop-like suit standing in the middle of a flat, open field. And then you see a Jeep come in from the side at 40 miles an hour and smack into him. And he survived all this stuff. Yeah? 
is that good or is that bad? So we gave him a prize 20 years ago, and he came down here. He just died in a, in a traffic accident. I'm sad he didn't have say. the suit on. Huh? He didn't have the suit on. Yeah, yeah um, that happened a couple weeks well, ago. So what do we learn from Troy's story? Um, that's of value. We learned that Troy did this. Okay. Uh, that is a real interesting one to me because almost everybody who hears about it, especially if you see these films, you can go to the internet and Google this and see it. It's really, it's, it really sticks with you. And almost everybody's reaction, sensibly, I guess, is that, well, this is crazy. But then when you realize this guy did this for seven years and he survived... How many people have you met in your lifetime who've done that many things that could kill them, but they did it so carefully, so consistently that they survived? So you get the opposite sides all in this one guy. So maybe the value here is not in the invention, but in the creative process and the story of the guy Behind the invention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the best thing for me is that we see people hear about this, and then we see them start to talk to their friends, and they get into beautiful arguments about, is this crazy? Is this brilliant? Hey, you know, when I was a kid, I saw somebody do this. Or, hey, in my work, we, ha- we need this. All of those things. We, we're, we, we like to kind of stir up that kind of trouble, in a sense, of people starting to really have... Arguments, good arguments, happy arguments with each other about how do you do something? What's good? What's bad? What do you think of this thing? Tell me. So you're trying to say something here about what? The creative process? About the intellectual process? The life of the mind? You tell me. About people. People people are really clever. Even, even the person, if you think throughout your whole lifetime, that you probably might call the dumbest person you ever met. If you really spent time with them, you would find that even that person has done some really clever things. And you might never hear about it unless you really talk with them. These kinds of things we give prizes to. I think almost everybody in the world does things that are kind of spectacular, but you never hear about it, especially the people that you know, the people you work with, because you get so used to them that, that you can see them do spectacular, clever things, but you see them every day, so you don't notice. And they don't notice the things you do either. You know, I started off our conversation in my typical snarky way joking about studies and research in the news business. That was a wonderful sneer. We're, we're I swamped with I'm glad you enjoyed it. Maybe <laughs> I can get an ignoble for journalism at, at this rate. But uh, the uh, there's a lot of skepticism, especially now, about news. All we hear about is fake news. And the research polling shows that... Um, an extraordinary percent of the public just disbelieves everything they hear. Well, that's pretty it, sensible, isn't it? Well, is uh, there a point to, dis- to, to disbelieve at least for a minute and then check into it? Well, if you if you check into it. Well, that's and, that's kind of what we're all about. That if you hear something that strikes you as that's impossible and stupid and crazy, maybe it is. But it doesn't take you more than a minute or two to check. And the opposite, if somebody tells you, you hear on TV, wow, what this person just did is great, it's fantastic, it's going to change the world. Maybe it is. You can check. You can go in a minute or two now, thanks to this internet thing, you can go and find out a little more 
and decide for yourself what you think rather than just accept what they told you. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting point because the last couple of years or so, I've been thinking a lot about the smartphone and whether this vaunted, incredibly successful, widely praised, miraculous, path-breaking invention is really so wonderful, yeah. or if it isn't the worst piece of crap that ever afflicted our culture and our society because of a lot of the evil that it's unleashed and enabled. May I take that conversation one step further? Please do. Maybe the answer is both. It's both of those. The answer is not just one word. The answer is the start of a nice, long conversation with somebody you really like talking with. Well, when you look back on the Nobel Award winners, I asked you about the a dumb one, which turned out to have value in other ways that weren't evident on the surface. What about one that got on your radar because it just had the most insipid possible title, but then really turned out to be surprisingly valuable? Uh, well, here's one. This, this is from a couple of years ago. A couple of scientists in Austria, in the University of Vienna in Austria, they saw some old, old official reports saying that about oh, 200, 300 years ago, the king of the country of Morocco, the emperor of Morocco, had 888 sons. And these were official reports that said he had 888 sons. Not with the same woman. Uh, he had a harem of about 500 women, and he had four wives, official wives. But they wondered, is it at all possible that's true, that one man could father 888 children? That sounds just crazy. And they're biologists. They study the way living things live and reproduce. And so they thought, well, maybe we can look into this. So they started looking into this. The question they were wondering about, is it possible for one man to father 888 children? And they looked really carefully at all the steps that happen when a child, a human child, is conceived and the fetus develops and the child is born. It's a lot of steps. And they started doing some computer models of how these steps play out. And every way they looked at it, they discovered, yeah, it really is possible. And then they started wondering, well, is it, you know, does it depend on having access like this guy did to 500 women who probably are not all that happy about it, but, you know, he had control of them. That's what everyone believes, that one man has an unlimited potential to have a number of kids. There are even Medical textbooks say that, you know, the, the number of children a man can have is unlimited, not so for a woman. And they, so they wondered, is that true? And what they discovered was, well, a, a man can have a, a surprisingly gigantic number of sons. And it does not depend so much on the number of women. The limiting thing is the guy that all the, the, the little computer models they did said that yeah, if you can collect and have access to that many women, if you're a king or whatever, um, once you get more than about 100 women, that's not going to increase the number of kids you can produce because the man is limited in what he can bring to it. And it's really the man's limitation, and it's really severe. 
So this started to raise all kinds of questions around the world um, in clinics where they deal with fertility you know, and people have trouble conceiving a child and all that. And, and it started to head off in all kinds of interesting directions, all because they got interested in this crazy sounding question of how many children can one man father? Not so crazy. Didn't Will Chamberlain claim to have had <laughs> sex with, was it a thousand or... 10,000 10,000 is what the headline said. Yeah. I'll tell you a little more about that now that I think of it. I, I, about Wilt? About, sort of about Wilt. Okay. Um, I have, uh, I, I travel around the world and I do a lot of public events with some of the, the people who've won these Ig Nobel Prizes where they're talking to big audiences, you know, the, just people random from the public about these things that these scientists have discovered. And... The, one of the scientists who looked into this question, um, I've seen this happen in many places, many countries, even with many audiences, that she explains this particular emperor of Morocco, his name was Moulay, um, it's quite possible that he did have 888 sons. But in order for him to do that, the way biology works, he had to work at it. He really almost, the only way he could have had that many was he had to have had sex every day for 32 years. Every day, once a day, no weekends, no time off. And I've seen, as she's describing this, this professor is describing it, I've seen every audience, they start to laugh and the men are chuckling in satisfaction every day, that's great. And then she looks at them around the room and she says, every day, every day for 32 years, no weekends, no, no time. Christmas day And you off. can see at that yeah. point, in the room full of hundreds of people in the audience, the women start to smile and the men start to look really unhappy and shrivel up. <laughs> That's going to take a whole lot of Viagra, I think. Hey. <laughs> okay, Paul, Liam, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> yeah, well. Leave it to Keller to drag the conversation right of down course, into the gutter. Right of course. Thing. By the way, Viagra, also a winner of a past Ig Nobel Prize. <laughs> I, I wonder about that. As it should be. Yeah, listen, it's my business and my mm -hmm. pleasure. By the way, for those who want to hear more of our conversation with Mark Abrams, uh, check out a bonus episode we have available for you, the same place that you downloaded Studio BZ in the first place. And with that, the much-anticipated return of Studio BZ yeah. concludes its first episode. What are our goals for this season? Any thoughts? Hmm. We want listeners to tell us what they want to hear on Studio BZ. But any white whales out there, any guests that you'd really like to get? I would really like to talk to Ayanna Presley. Yes. And you know what? I'd also like to talk to Mike Capuano. That'd because be a lot of people today are going to get Ayanna Presley. She's been doing the circuit. She's been on mm -hmm. CNN. She's been bouncing around. I wonder how Capuano is doing. Interesting. And what he thinks about why he lost. Sure. John? Um, oh, Thoughts? Who, who do I want to talk to? Um, I, to tell you the truth, I was just thinking about the cold beer I have in my fridge at home. <laughs> <laughs> so, on that well, note... We really want to hear from Studio We do, and, and you know, uh, I can't tell you what this is yet, because we have to work out some details, mm -hmm. but the, those of you who would like to help us out, tell us what you like on Studio BZ, what you don't like, perhaps who you'd like to hear us talk to, what topics you'd like to see us bring up. If you will uh, send us a tweet mm -hmm. or an email, um, and you, you do so with great 
content and very articulately, there might be a sweet prize in it for Whoa. you. I can't say oh, more nice. than that, but okay. something that I think you'll Knowing really Knowing John, it might involve jazz or beer. <laughs> no, well, it, it, <laughs> Is this one of those where... Paula and I are not allowed to win the prize because we yeah, are. I no, think that's so. Correct. Yeah. As employees. a CBS employee, Liam, no, yeah. that's a bummer. You are excluded. You from know the boilerplate. <laughs> anyway, uh, hey, if what's you, the Twitter handle? Well, if you want to, uh, first of all, the Twitter handle for the show is at Studio BZ Pod. At Studio BZ Pod. My Twitter handle is at Keller at Large. My email Keller at wbztv.com. Paula? My email is pebbin at cbs.com. My Twitter handle at Paula Eben WBZ. My email lmartin at cbs.com. Send all your hate mail if you'd like. And my Twitter handle is Liam WBZ. Yeah. So can I send you my hate mail? Yes, <laughs> please do. John, <laughs> John, John just and I have a ongoing, long-standing run of bets. Did We, we didn't really coffee. bet on Capuano Presley. No, we didn't. No. And where do we stand on coffees? Uh, I think you're up a couple, but I'm, I'm going to rectify, rectify that. No, no, you, I, I no, owe no you. John owes yes. you. I, owe I think yeah. you might owe me okay. one. And that, that is really, really mortifying to me. <laughs> <laughs> it should be, frankly. As it should be. Well, welcome back, everybody. Yay. And we hope you enjoyed the show. And we'll talk to you next time on Studio BZ. And we'll be seeing you. I would I was hoping you guys would forget about that. No. <laughs> no. I we'll never I actually forget. thought no. about it today on my ride in. I was like, I really hope we do the Will Be Zing. Yeah. Yes. I really hope that someone sticks up for this or, like, actually contacts one of you guys and says, I hate it. I hate it. I love it. I love it. Right. Hey. Well, that'll be a whole segment. All right. <laughs> okay.